Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. Today, we're going to be discussing executive overreach. In Federalist 47, James Madison quoted Montesquieu on the separation of powers, quote, when the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty. Over the course of the coronavirus pandemic, the question of balancing executive and legislative authority has taken center stage. Across the nation, state houses have struggled to determine where the emergency powers of the governor ends and the responsibilities of the legislature begin. During a February ALEC policy hour, a panel of experts discussed real solutions to the dangers of executive overreach. The legislative branch makes laws, and many state Supreme Courts, many courts have said making laws really means establishing essential policies, and that the executive has a limited authority to establish regulations to make laws as long as the legislature still sets the policy. Obviously, with the emergency powers, the governor is setting policy and determining what should exist or should not exist as far as businesses or whether society should be shut down for a a very long time. And it deprives the legislature the ability to, to establish policy, and it really prevents a proper response to a long term emergency. This was Jonathan Howenschild on the ALEC panel, who is joining us here today in studio to talk about this more. Jonathan is the director of the Communications and Technology Task Force here at ALEC. Thank you for coming today, Jonathan. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Great. So let's kick things off by first discussing the failures of executive overreach. Now, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we saw the media applaud governors for taking drastic, unilateral, unbridled action. And to be fair... A lot of these state houses did give them that authority. They did hand over the reins. Now, you may remember there was a New York Times op-ed titled, quote, Andrew Cuomo is the control freak we need right now, but that was a year ago. And in that clip we just played, you said that when legislative branches surrender their authority to the executive during emergencies, an inadequate response is the result. Now, in hindsight, looking back at this pandemic, when and how did the strategy of legislative retreat and executive dominance ultimately fail? When and how did it go off the rails? Well, there's a couple answers to that question. One could actually argue that it was back in the 70s when a lot of legislatures passed these emergency management acts. They really should have known better than to surrender a lot of their policy-making authority to the governor. That is a little simplistic, though, because there are emergencies where the legislature simply doesn't have time to meet or react. And For the most part, that is what those emergency management acts envisioned. You know, if a a hurricane hits, you don't necessarily have the time to meet. You might have plenty of warning, but you don't have the time to meet. Tornado. You can't assemble a massive group of people on a dime in the middle of a a national emergency. Correct. Right. But a lot of those are also localized. You know when a tornado hits where the damage is. When an earthquake hits where the damage is. Same with a hurricane. With a pandemic, you don't. So, you know, the failure comes somewhere between when the legislatures gave a lot of this authority to the governor to set policy back in the mid-70s when this passed. There was a lot of failure, too, in defining what types of emergencies qualify. It's hard to say that there's a hard and fast time for the failure. Certainly because governors can respond to those exigent emergencies. It's sometime after when the crisis starts 
and sometime after when we know enough information for the legislature to start making informed decisions. Right. Typically, with this pandemic, we started seeing a lot of that information come forward after about two to four weeks. So that we had a pretty good picture of what the virus is, kind of a theory on how it transmits to the point where the legislatures could start stepping in. But they couldn't because of the way the powers were set up. Correct. But they couldn't. So the ultimate failure is back in the 70s when they passed it, which gave the governors the excuse to claim the authority and then the excuse to simply ignore the legislatures. So with that in mind, we have seen a proliferation of state emergencies issued as of late. And with those emergencies come additional powers for the executive. It's not just the coronavirus. It's not just hurricanes and floods. Daniel, do the Pacific Legal Fund has something to say about this during the panel discussion. And what we've seen over the past few years, a lot of things are being declared an emergency. We've had opioids declared an emergency, climate change declared an emergency, racism declared an emergency. Those may be serious issues that that there may be public policy prescriptions to to deal with, but they're not things that we want a governor to step in and declare an emergency and to rule unilaterally on those issues. And if state legislatures do not step up and take that responsibility back, then I'm, I'm afraid that's what we may see in the future. At some point in the coming months, the coronavirus pandemic will subside and conclude. However, while the virus may go, the politicians do not so easily give up their power to issue these declarations for, you know, racism and other issues like that, which are certainly issues, but they don't necessarily fall to the traditional idea of what constitutes a state or national emergency. What are the long-term legal and constitutional impacts of executive overreach and national emergency? What are the dangers of that? Well, the first and easiest danger is that the separation of powers completely goes away in government. And you basically have a governor that can rule through fiat without the input of the legislature. And this actually is a very particular damage. So I was looking at a number of state emergency management acts. It's not all of them, but a number of them have definitions of disasters and often distinguish between man-made and natural. And if you look at the definition of man-made disaster, a governor could declare an emergency for climate change, could declare an emergency for gun violence. There's really no limit to what type of emergency they could declare. Right. And you could see a governor come along and say, and I get this hypothetical, so it's a little bit ridiculous, but saying, hey, climate change is a serious issue. So if your license plate number ends with an even number, you get to drive on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If it ends with an odd number, you drive on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and no one drives on Sunday. Wow. And less people think that that's just pulled out of thin air, at least for a while, that was the policy in France. Yeah. So it's (laughs) not out of the question to say that could come to the United States eventually. The other thing you could start seeing, and I was reading something yesterday where one of the governors put, and I can't remember which one, put forward the idea that he could declare a state of emergency and by something like 2035, 2040, outlaw gasoline engines in the state and mandate electrical vehicles. Wow. So, yeah, there are some significant dangers with the way the laws are currently worded that give the governors far too much authority to declare emergencies 
and completely cut the legislatures out of the process. So this is definitely something that needs to be changed, obviously. You can't have governors willy-nilly just changing rules, creating this stuff out of thin air. But as in the discussion last week we had in the panel, State Representative Sage Dixon of Idaho noted that the difficulty that many legislators are having is that when it comes to checking and rating an executive overreach during the pandemic, it's not as easy as it sounds. So let's go to that audio. We have no ability in Idaho to call ourselves back into session. We can only come back into session if the governor calls us back into session, and that is then only on specific topics. So it was very limited in what we could do when we were constantly, many of us, pressuring the governor to get us back into session so we could address the issues of the emergency order and how these dollars were being spent. Both of those things were large concerns, the businesses that were being shut down, the stay-at-home orders, and then just the amount of money coming from the federal government that was not being appropriated by the legislature as we were supposed to. Taking into mind what Dixon said, what are some of the reforms that state houses can pursue and institute on a procedural level or in the courts or elsewhere to ensure their voice and role in emergencies is heard and executed after those first two to four weeks of fact gathering and whatnot? How can we avoid another case of governors abusing, misusing their executive emergency powers as a way to circumvent the legislator. What can be done there? Yeah, first thing I'll do is highlight a couple of our model policies. The first one where, you know, like Senator Dush and a couple other state legislators had a lot of impact in passing and also Pacific Legal Foundation, Daniel Dew and others were very instrumental in helping craft. And, and that's the Emergency Power Reform Act. That has some great points in it. But then we also have the Statement of Principles to Inform Emergency Management Acts. That's a roundabout way of saying, getting to some some points. The first one, I think you actually have to recognize that governors have a legitimate role. They are the head of the executive. They can help plan for these emergencies. They can, in advance, now that we know something like this is to happen, and something that surprised me is that it caught us completely off guard. And why did it surprise me? Well, this wasn't the first outbreak in recent memory to come from China. Right. You had SARS. Right. You've had, I believe it was swine flu. Yeah. You've had several outbreaks. So the fact that we were caught flat-footed and hadn't planned is a little bit of a surprise. And that goes on to the federal government and the states. But governors can plan. Governors can coordinate things. And within the, as mentioned earlier, within the first couple weeks, the governors can have some authority. Right. To help the response before the legislature can meet, before the legislature can respond. But the first kind of point on this one is that that authority needs to terminate at some point. And probably the best mechanism, based off of our experience, to do that is to have the emergency power automatically sunset after whatever it is, two weeks, 30 days. I know our statement of principles say 30 to 45 days. And most of the policies that I'm seeing introduced in state are limiting it to somewhere between 15 and 30 days. It sunsets, but it can be extended by the legislature. So have the legislature come together and meet and determine what exercises of authority were appropriate and what were not. Gotcha. That way you avoid the situation where a governor unilaterally decides that lives associated with COVID are more valuable than those that are contemplating suicide. That staying at home to prevent the spread is more important than detecting and reporting child abuse. 
I mean, you have a number of those scenarios, and that's not to minimize those that are suffering from COVID and dying. It's just that it has to be a balancing act. And that balancing act is best done when the governor sits down with the legislature and hashes out the policies. And with that in mind, ultimately, at the end of the whole discussion, how are the responses better to these crises when the executive branch works hand in hand, not merely on its own, but when you see the legislative branch, when you see the executive work together, how is it better? What happens when you see that collaboration? How is the response improved through that process? You get long-term solutions that are the best options for society. You don't get this unilateral decision to shut down some businesses, but keep other businesses open. You don't get this unilateral decision that some lives are more important than other lives. You get a compromise solution that is the best for a state or a region as a whole. And it preserves the authority of the legislature to establish policy and establish laws and the governor's authority to plan and respond to emergencies. Collaboration and accountability. Collaboration and accountability. It really is what the founding fathers and the framers envisioned for American society. And for some reason, you know, the casting aside of these constitutional protections, the Constitution was designed to restrain government in all situations, when there's emergencies and when there's not emergencies. I believe it was Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch who said that there is no pandemic, no emergency exception to the United States Constitution. Right. Absolutely. And you have you have that. And that's another proposal we're seeing across states is making it very clear that even when governors exercise their emergency authorities, they cannot infringe on constitutional rights. They cannot limit public gatherings that are there for the purpose of protesting. Right. They cannot limit the free exercise of religion. In some states where it's the Emergency Management Act goes so far, they can't infringe on the Second Amendment. And so you are seeing that aspect in states. And so that's you know one of the potential solutions. But that's the ultimate, when you're looking at the ultimate threats and the ultimate solutions, that's, that's really what they are. So the legislature working together with the governor understanding that the Constitution still sets the outer limits on what both can do during an emergency as well as during peacetime. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on, Jonathan. This has been incredibly informative, and I'm sure our listeners will definitely enjoy exploring this topic more. Thank you for coming in today, Jonathan. My pleasure. And for all those who are interested, the ALEC annual meeting is this July, and signups and registration have begun. Go to alec.org slash meetings to sign up in beautiful Salt Lake City. Again, I'm your host, Matt Fisher. This has been Across the States. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.